The verse I'd like to open up with this morning is taken from Isaiah 26.3. We're living in some very bizarre times today. And we're living in times where people don't know what truth is anymore. And there's a lot of tension among people. But if you'll notice what Isaiah 26.3 says when it was originally written to Israel which is still applicable for us today. And I think it would be well that we follow this. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is what? Whose mind is stayed on you. Actually, that reads as peace, peace. You will keep him in peace, peace, whose mind is focused on you. And why is this? Because He trusts you. So let's remember this as we navigate throughout the week to keep our minds focused on Him. Now you'll recall that um, I had mentioned two weeks ago, possibly three, that um, We have an opportunity to worship the Lord in many ways, and one way is in the area of giving. And rather than passing a basket around, we have a box in the back. And so one way that you can show your act of worship in the area of giving is to give as you are able to. This is not not coercion. This is not forced. This comes from the heart. The Lord said that He lo- God loves a cheerful giver. And so, rather than reminding you every Sunday, we'll just have a box in the back so that in the privacy of your own heart between you and God, you can resolve that and take care of that. So there are many ways that we can worship God. We worship Him in spirit and in truth as we study the Word of God. Uh, the area of giving, and you have a beautiful church here. We have a beautiful church here. Notice the word we. I'm including myself. And I am pleased to be a part of this church. Pastor Dan has done such a fantastic job, hasn't he? And we want to maintain the hard work, the 17 years of hard work that he has committed to God. And so one way we can reciprocate is remembering how we can help. And one thing I'd like to challenge you all in is invite people to church. I mean, let them know that National Capital Bible Church exists here so that we can teach them biblical truth, that they can learn how to deal with stress and the challenges of life. Because today, uh, they're arguing now that you can be a female, you can be male, you could be whatever you feel. And that's a shame because the Bible doesn't teach that, as you all know. And the only one that is going to put their foot down and speak biblical truth are those churches that adhere to the authority and the veracity of God's Word. Can I get an amen for that? We need to stand up for truth. If you believe that when Jesus said you're to be salt and light of this world, that's not optional. He's not asking, do you want to? He's commanding us you and telling us that you are light and salt of this world. And so as such, I'd like to challenge all of you to make it a point to tell your believing friends, and even if you don't have any believing friends, um, make them a believer by sharing the gospel, and then bring them to National Capital Bible Church because we will take care of them you have a golden opportunity to advance the cause of Christ. And that is important. That's part of the Great Commission. That's not optional. So, before we get into the Scriptures, I'd like to invite Hal up to lead us in song. And then we have a few songs. And then I will continue with our series on basics. Before we look into the Word this uh, this morning, let's start with a word of prayer. We have an opportunity to confess or name any known sins to God.
preparing ourselves for the intake of God's Word. 1 John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so perchance if we've committed any sins, mental, overt, or verbal, we have the opportunity to rectify that now before we engage in His Word. So let's pause for a moment of silence and pray, and then I will open with prayer. Father, we are here because your word says to not forsake the assembling of saints. And saints we are as a result of uh, faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to assemble in freedom under one roof to examine the truths of your word. There are places uh, around the world where they are running and hiding just to own a Bible Some lives are threatened. Some have died because of the fact that they are uh, lifting high the cross and admitting that they are Christians. But Father, we are here because of the fact that we have freedom. We are not bothered. Our only inconvenience today is the sacrifice of driving out here or or listening online. Father, that is nothing compared to what you have done on our behalf. So I trust and and pray, Father, that as we examine these biblical truths, the basics, that we would have a greater appreciation for your word. Some churches call it Bible doctrine, but Father, we recognize that ultimately it's your living word. Hebrews 4.12 says that every the word of God is alive and powerful. It's not my words, it's your words that's powerful. And so may we recognize that there's nothing mysterious or mystical about the Scripture, but that it comes and originates from you. It speaks authoritatively of the living Word of God, which is your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we open the Word of God to reflect what we know to be true about the living Word of God so that we can emulate Him and bring you honor and glory in all that we say, think, and do. So, Father, as we engage in your word this morning, I pray that if there's anything vying for our attention, be it marital, finances, any kind of relationships, that we would lay those aside so that we can put you first as preeminent and priority in our lives. And, Lord, how guilty we are at times where we fail to prioritize you when we know we ought to. But Father, the battalion here, the National Capital Bible Church, is a unique church in that we prioritize your word and who you are. And I pray, Lord, that we would uh, continue to rally together to advance the cause of Christ, letting people know from the highways and byways that National Capital Bible Church here stands for the Lord Jesus Christ and that those who would believe in him would have life everlasting. May we be bold in proclaiming this truth. We know that many churches are anemic. They are afraid. And I think part of the reason why is because they're not familiar with the basic doctrines, the basic truths of God's Word. So as we cut through the basics from scratch and go to a thousand percent over time, Lord, I pray that we would not miss, that we take seriously every Sunday as we assemble together where we're edified and we're united because of God the Holy Spirit. There's nobody here that's better than the other person. We are all equal in the sense that we are in Christ, and that's what makes us unique. We're positionally in Christ through God the Holy Spirit, and as such we have access to supreme power, greater than any power, any military power in this world, because of who resides in us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to uh, stand with the brethren here that we might be edified so that we can advance the cause of Christ, thus winning people, many souls, to Jesus Christ because we know that your desire is that none should perish. And I trust that that would be our desire as well as we continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. All of these things we pray in your Son's matchless name in which we pray. Amen. A few verses before I open as preparatory. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So if you have your Bibles, and if you have the notes that we had printed out, there's only two pages, but um, and I want to tell you in advance that I promise I will not call on you. Uh, I have a tendency to ask people to help me. So if you're the helping kind, just raise your hand, or if I ask for someone to read the verse, please read the verse. And if no one reads the verse, then I'll call you. <laughs> but no, I don't want anybody to to wonder if I'm going to call on you. I'm, I'm not like that, although last week I got carried away because I was getting really comfortable. But that's just my style. But more importantly, I want everybody to be here so that we can start from scratch. And I know that some of you have probably have gone through the basics. But being interim pastor here, it's a joy for me to make sure that we're all on the same page. And so I'd like us to look closely at the truths that you probably already know. And if you do, then maybe you could voice it out as we go through the, the slides. My objective is not to challenge your intellect, but to grow you in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And so I may talk a lot at times, but it's if I talk too much, just say, but that's just my style, and I believe in interacting. I believe in uh, that's how you learn. In public schools, that's what they do. They engage with the students. That's how re- it's part of repetition. And so a lot of this you'll see as repetition. And again, you may know some of this already, but please don't think that I'm, bel- I'm challenging or belittling your I- spiritual IQ. I know that if you sat under Dan for any length of time, you're mature. You probably could be behind this pulpit and teach. But I'm here, so if you don't mind, just bear with me. So for now, we're on increment number two. And I'm going to go here so that I know where we are. And I can at least touch you instead of calling you out. I'll just say, could you... (laughs) Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is what? It's impossible. That means it's not possible to please Him. So we live from faith to faith. For he who comes to God must believe what? That He is. Do you believe that He is? That is loaded. If I ask you to explain what he is, is can you? It's loaded. And this is why we're going over basics because I want us to be on the same page and to know thoroughly what it is that we believe in. Basic apologetics is you must know what it is that you believe in and why. And one of the things that I'm finding uh, to be true is many Christians, even in doctrinal circles, they're not sure what they believe in. They might be able to say, doctrine of the hypostatic union, but then to define it? I'll give you a good example. Uh, You don't have to answer this unless you're confident and comfortable. What does it mean to walk by means of the Spirit? Galatians 5. Anybody? Can you give, unpack what it means to walk Because that is an absolute truth there. Would you agree? Galatians 5. Walk by means of the Spirit and you will what? Not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That is the answer to sin. But how do you explain that? What's it look like? This is walking. But spiritually speaking, what does it mean to walk by means of the Spirit? You can probably hear people say, well, it means depending on the Holy Spirit, trusting in Him day by day. But what if the person is struggling and says, Marty, you know, I need help in this area. And Marty, you know, I'm having a hard time with my marriage. I'm having a difficult time with, uh, I have this addiction. 
And this passage here seems to tell me, it seems at least just on glance, glancing at it, that if I would walk by means of the Spirit, I would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Is that true? And you would probably say yes. But how do you explain that? How do you unpack that? Can you? Can you come behind this pulpit and tell me if I'm struggling with lusting, I'm in pornography. Let's be real, okay? I'm struggling with pornography. I'm not really, but let's just say I am. What would you say? Freddie, all you have to do is walk by means of the Spirit. Help me out. What would you say? That's what I'm talking about. We need to understand the dynamics, not just be able to say divine dinosphere, rebound. Those terms have been floating around for many of years, but I know people who still are almost in infancy because they know the terminology, but they don't know what it means. So the terminology is meaningless if they don't know what it actually means. You can parrot, a parrot can say the same thing, but I want us to live in victory. And I'm not talking about going to a mountaintop and saying, Hallelujah, I've been free. No, I'm talking about real, the real deal. Why is it the apostles and the disciples, when they saw Jesus, they would believe in what he would say? You know, I remember in seminary, one of my professors said in, in our discipleship class after soteriology, he said, you know, the problem with the church today is that the church is surprised when God answers prayers today. But in the early church, they're not surprised. They're surprised if he doesn't. Why is that? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And there's an interlocking system that we're going to learn. And I want to start with basics. So this is increment two. And so, bear with me. Remember... Christianity is primarily about a mindset. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't go there, don't wear this, don't wear that, don't color your hair. It has nothing to do with that. It's a mindset. It always starts with a mindset. You find this in Philippians 2, 5, and 8, where Jesus, who was up there, humbled himself to the point of the cross and came down here made himself a little lower than the angels. So there's a lot to unpack there, but we're also going to move through this because I set the stage with reminding us that Christianity is really a mindset. It's how you think. Your body, your behavior is going to be the direct consequence to what you focus on in your thinking. If you focus on the things of the Spirit, you receive two things. Anybody know what it is? Romans 8. This is part of walking. If a person focuses their mind on the things of the Spirit, they would receive... Let's turn to Romans 8, since I already mentioned it. So, And we will look at this in a future session. But for now, since I brought it up, it might be good to just kind of give you kind of a preview of what we're going to be looking at on a, at a deeper level. But at Romans 8, 1. I'll read for the recording and those online. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? There's that preposition again. In. N. Those who are in Christ. How many of you are in Christ? That refers to you and to me. But notice what it says afterwards. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's that walking now, that word walk. Peripateo, but we will look into that later on. For the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It goes on to say, God, He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not... What? What's the word there? Okay, so the difference between verse 1 and verse 4 
is one word. Or two words. Anybody see what the two words are? What's the difference between verse 1 and 4? There are those who are, verse 1, in Christ. And then there are those who, what? Walk. So, you have two categories of believers. Those who walk and those who do not. That's important to notice. If you miss that, you miss the whole idea of walking. To walking um, as found in Galatians 5. So, notice... For those who live according to the flesh. Okay, here's walking now. Okay, Those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those Christians, I'm adding the word Christians just for clarification, but those who live according to the Spirit, what do they set their minds on? The things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded results in two things. What are the two things? Life and peace. You know anybody that needs life or peace? Purpose and direction? I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I just feel like there's nothing left for me to do. Life and peace is the byproduct of walking. Setting your minds on the things of the Spirit. So if a person wants peace and stability as found in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, that is a mind that is set on the things of the Spirit. We'll unpack that in probably two weeks, one or two weeks. We'll look at Romans 8. But I just wanted you to give you a preview of what we're going to be looking at. So those who set their minds, verse 5, those who are living, those who live according to the flesh, they're the ones who set their minds on the things of the flesh, the worldly things. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now here's what happens. He go, Paul un, unpacks this a little bit more. For to be carnally minded, so if you are sarkikos minded, if you are fleshly minded, it, it results in death. Can it result in physical death? Sure, it could. But you, it's really, contextually speaking, of a Spiritual separation, broken fellowship. Not a loss of salvation, but a death or cessation of things like joy, peace, and so on. So to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Remember in Romans 7, Paul is talking about this ongoing war. The the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Do you ever feel like that? That's the warring going on in Romans 7 and Paul nails it here in verse 8, chapter 8. He says, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. He knows the answer now to that tug of war in Romans 7. It's the byproduct of a mindset. If you're going to set your minds on the things of the Spirit, in the end, you will have life and inner stability or peace. But a mind that's set on carnality is death. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. But can someone read verse 8? What does verse 8 say? I want to see, you just see the contrast here between 1 and 8. Okay, so in verse 1, Those who are in Christ, those who are walking according to the flesh, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot what? Cannot please God. Okay, so you can't please God. Verse 1 talks about those in Christ. Who are those who are in Christ? Believers. How about those who walk according to the flesh? Carnal. Very good. Very. You want to teach the class now? Mm-hmm. That's You're spot on, Scott. Carnal. So that means that you and I, at times, can be walking in carnality. 
we can be in the flesh. I mean, not, not in the flesh, I'm sorry. Walking by means of the flesh. You remember my initial diagram? I showed you a white circle. And then we had the new nature and the old nature. And that tension, the war going on on the inside. Well, in Romans 8, Paul says that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. To those who are walking according to the Spirit. So there is the, there is the category of walking according to the Spirit and walking according to the flesh. Carnality. And in Romans uh, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What's a contemporary rendering of that? Can someone say that in today's vernacular? What, what's, he, what's Paul saying in verse 8? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What's he saying? Out of fellowship, good. What it, look closely at what it's saying. Who can't please God? Huh? Who's the one that can't please God in verse 8? Just so we're clear on this. It's very, very important. One word. The unbeliever. Verse 8 is referring to an unbeliever. How do we know that? Because of the word in the flesh. In the flesh. We're not in the flesh. Notice what he says in verse 9. Can someone read verse 9? There's a contrast now between those. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Ah. You see the difference now? He says those in the flesh cannot what? Cannot please God. So, in other words, the unbelievers cannot please God. There's nothing that they can do to please God. But for the believer, you are in the Spirit. Indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. We will look at this some more later on. But the point being is, I want you to see that how one word can make a world of difference. In, walk. In fact, in Romans 8, there are two categories of believers. Those who are walking setting their minds on the things of the Spirit, and it results in what? Two things. Life and peace. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, what does it result in? One thing. Death. And we'll, we'll unpack, what does that mean, death? Does that mean I'm going to die? Is that the sin unto death? We'll look at that in the future. But for now, that was just a teaser to get you guys to see where we're headed. So the believer's life requires execution based on thought. It's always about your thinking. That's why I've placed heavy emphasis on renovating your mind. Don't be like the world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, Romans 12.2. This study will expose you to, again, another key word that we're familiar with, divine viewpoint, DV for short, divine viewpoint thinking and God's overall plan. God actually has a system. The Word of God has a system for doing things and we will study them one at a time known as Bible doctrine or God's Word and principles. Don't get hung up on Bible doctrine. Just know that it's really talking about God's Word. I say that because when you see Scripture and you see what Paul says, he utilizes the word word primarily. So, in our circles, we tend to use the word Bible doctrine and that means teaching. What's doctrine mean? Teaching. But, again, I, I think one of the things that I'm seeing is we're so fixated on these terms that if we don't know what it means, it's almost like you didn't study at all. So, I, I'm hoping that we can just start... Um, from scratch and look at what the Word says and utilize it as best as we can. So, moving forward. If you study these truths closely and apply what you learn, you will enjoy a vibrant life full of meaning and definition. You'll learn that stress, as I pointed out last week. 
though real, is optional. Anybody know what I mean there? I'm not sure what I meant. What does that mean? What is stress really optional? You chose to dwell on it. What does Isaiah 26.3 say? <clears throat> Those who set their minds on Him have peace. If you set your mind on the problems, you'll fragment. You'll fall apart. So stress is optional. Why? Because bottom line, this is PF's definition. This is Pastor Freddie's definition, okay? For stress. Look at me. This is very important. You either believe God or you don't. That's what it boils down to. You either believe God or you don't. He says, be anxious for what? Do you believe Him? That's what it boils down to. If you're, stre- if you're a worry war, you're not really trusting God and you're in sin. You're violating Philippians 4, 6. Is it easier said than done? Yeah, it can be. But it really depends on your relationship with God. What do I mean by that? And this is why I'm, I'm hoping that you see the value of using the words that are strictly from the scriptures rather than a certain vernacular that we're accustomed to. Not, nothing wrong with it, but I think that if we get down to the bare bone basics of what the Word of God has to say, I think we'll accelerate uh, quickly. If, um, let's just say, Hal. Hal is my friend. What's the difference between my relationship with Hal and my relationship with my daughter or my son? One is personal. One is personal. One is impersonal, correct. And one requires time. I think I mentioned this in the first study. If Hal and I started to hang out for many, many years, the relationship as an acquaintance might become stronger. Is it possible he could become my best friend? I could become his best friend? What would that require? Time. So it is possible and, and feasible to think that Hal and I could be best of friends over time, right? That's not hard to, to understand. What would, what would be required is both of us spending time together. Me getting to know Hal, Hal getting to know me. But if I really want to, Hal to be my best friend, I need to know if I can trust him. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't mean that in a negative way, but I really don't know Hal or anybody here, correct? You don't know me either. How are you going to know whether or not you can trust me? You have to get to know me. That means you have to spend time with me, listening to the teachings, listening to what I'm saying, seeing if I'm consistent. But if you spend time with me over time, you will be able to confidently say, you know what, this guy, although he talks a lot, he's okay. I like him. He's okay. He speaks the truth. And you know, I can tell he's a man of integrity based on A, B, C, D, based on your observations. Does that make sense? Likewise, your ability to stress or not stress depends on whether or not the person you say yes to, Jesus Christ, whether or not you truly believe Him. What does it mean to believe Him? Is it true? But then again, this I think is one of the reasons why people are hesitant to share their faith because they're, what, what do you usually hear? I don't, I'm afraid they might ask me a question I can't answer. Saturday morning, here's a guy with the Elder Joe, Elder Bob on his, on his shirt, riding his bike. Oh, don't open the door. Why not? 
They're coming to you. There's an opportunity to share. We should be ready for things like this. And this is why we're moving through basics from scratch. We're going to hit the very basics of basics and go all the way up and accelerate and go as far as we can. And those who are going to be with me, hopefully we'll learn a lot together. So just hang tight. Here I mentioned this and I think this is important. Let's have your Bibles open. If someone could read Acts 16.31, John 5.24, John 6.40 and John 6.47. Let's read this together. The Christian life starts with salvation. It's the most important person to believe. The most important person to believe in is the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What does John 5.24 say? If anyone has it. And let's, let's all turn to John. And again... I don't mind if you don't know how to turn your Bibles. Use the table of contents in the very beginning and look for John. When I say John 5.24, what I'm saying is the book of John, chapter 5, verse 24. There's no shame in not knowing how to handle your Bible yet. If you've ever used a firearm, you'll know, you'll recall that at the very beginning... It was a little nerve-wracking. And so it wasn't until you familiarize yourself with the firearm that you were comfortable. Pretty soon you can carry it on your person. But prior to that, you're like, no way, I'm not going to put that on my side. So likewise, this is your sword. This is your weapon. So familiarize yourself with it. Who has John 5.24? Very good. Very good. Who are we believing in in John 5:24? Look again, slowly. I think Hal got it. Who are we leaving who are we believing in in John 5:24? Ooh. No. Nope. Jesus Christ. What? How many of you are sharing God the Father? Did you know if you believe in God the Father, you can have everlasting life? Is that what we tell people today? No? What? I thought this was a solid church. It is. What does it mean? Wait a minute. I thought John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Didn't we read in Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Now why is it saying in 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life. I knew there was a contradiction I knew it. That's why I don't come to church. I don't go to a Christian church because there's the Bible is full of contradictions. Is that a contradiction? Help me understand this. You see why I like to talk? Hopefully you guys don't mind and you kind of get accustomed to this because I won't call on you. I'll just ask for volunteers. So don't worry. I'm not going to call your name. But I like to interact a lot. So I hope, hopefully you guys are okay with that. But if I go overboard, just go like this. Uh, time out. One in being? Okay, very good. Um, God the Father and God the Son are one in being. So how do you explain that to the person who needs salvation? Oh, well, you know... It's like this. God the Father and Jesus are really one and the same. They're one in being. How do you unpack that? How do you share that? Is there an easier way? Anyone else? What do you think? Rick. I think, I think that's a reference to the fact that 
Okay, so if you share that, you're right. You, both of you are right. They do share the same attributes. So how would you define attributes to the unbeliever? How, how do you explain that? You know what? See, what's going on is God the Father who's God and God the Son who's also God, they're one in essence. They share the same attributes. And so by believing in the Father, not the Son, the Father here in John 5.24, you have everlasting life. How do you how do you put that together? They're schizophrenic? I'm sorry. They're schizophrenic? Mm-hmm. Very and good. It seems to me I, I work my way towards somehow. You do, okay. Uh, and uh, you're you're spot on, Rick. I'm just having fun with you. But very good. So let's try to uh, under, understand this. In here, can we at least admit that it is seems to be the focal point is the Father, right? It says, "Most assuredly, I say to you, here who he who hears my word, Jesus speaking." And believes in him who sent me. Who sent them? God the Father. So we know it's the Father. If you believe in the one who sent me, you have everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. How about 640? And I'll answer 524. But let's pull the verses together. We're having class now. We're studying the Word. I love hearing the... Ah, so what's that one saying now? Very good. Very, very good. John 6.40. And then... Will of the Father, very good. So you're following the will of the Father. Very good, Scott. Very good. And so he's the originator of the plan. And what did Jesus say in John 5.24? If you believe in him who sent me, you have everlasting life. So what does John 6.40 say? This is the will of him, the Father, who sent me. Here's the will of the Father. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. So in order to believe in the Father, you have to believe in the Son. By believing in the Father's will, you're believing in what He has said about His Son. Look closely at John 6.40. This is the will of Him. I'm I'm going to change the word Him to Father. This is the will of the Father who sent me. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him, believes in who? Jesus Christ may have everlasting life. That's the will of the Father. The will is everyone who sees Jesus at that time or believes in Him will have everlasting life. So by believing in Jesus or believing in the Father, you therefore must believe in Jesus. Why? Because that's the Father's will. The Father's will is that whoever sees and believes in the Son will have everlasting life. Did I confuse you guys? Or does that make sense? Okay. At least Vanessa said, yeah, it's okay. Okay, good. How about 647? 
Anybody have 647? Okay, so who's speaking there? So, 99 times in the Gospel of John itself, the issue is believing in Jesus. Remember, we started out with faith. Without faith, it is impossible to, to please God. The purpose statement in John is found in John 20. If you want to turn there really quickly, and I'll be the one to read it. The purpose statement is found in John 20, 30 and 31. And I want you to see something very closely. Some miss this, but I don't think you guys have, because you guys are all astute here. Truly, Jesus did many other signs. That word is simeon. Not miracles, but a sign is a miracle as well. There are eight signs in the Gospel of John. Look, let me, I'm going to put emphasis, I'm going to change the intonation of my voice. Jesus, true, and Jesus truly, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. And there are eight. Some will say seven, but There are eight, including the resurrection of Christ. Eight signs in the Gospel of John. These were written... Well, first of all, let me follow the flow here. John 20, 30, and 31. So let me start again. Is everybody there? 30 and 31, John 20, near the back. And truly, Jesus did many other signs I'm pausing on that word because this is going to explain why these were written listen to this he did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not what written in that you may believe or I'm sorry written in this book so There are many other signs and there are how many in this book? Eight. There are many other signs that were done but not recorded in this book. So we know that there are eight. Now what does John say about these eight? These eight, I'm I'm adding that in for clarification, these eight signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is the ideal gospel track right here. I never got around to it, but maybe while I'm here, I'd like to create a gospel track that will incorporate the eight signs found in the Gospel of John so that when we share it, we can say, did you know that there's a person by the name of Jesus Christ who turned water into wine, healed someone from a distance, raised someone from the dead by the name of Lazarus, and he said, destroy this Soma, and in three days I will raise it up. And there are a total of eight signs, and go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Show them the eight signs and then say, now that you can see that this was just not a mere man, do you believe that when he says that by believing in him you can have everlasting life? He who believes in me has everlasting life. Do you think if he can fulfill these eight things that we just read together, do you think he has the authority and the power to give you everlasting life by just simply believing in him for it. And of course you can share the whole cross and what he has done. But I think the signs were written that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you can have what? Everlasting life. So, I pointed out as well Belief is merely persuasion. 
It's not a decision. Remember I was pointing that out, highlighting that last week? Remember I had Marty come up here and say, Marty, come up here, let's do our little role play. Yeah. Let's have some fun, Marty. And if I recall, you, your ethnicity is Afro-American. Afro-American. The truth is, I'm Afro-American. He's Filipino. Do you believe that? Anybody, anybody believe what I just said? He's Filipino. I'm Afro-American. The truth is, he's Afro-American. I'm Filipino. Do you believe that? How did you come to believe that? You s- handsome, handsome black man. That I can't argue. You're also a handsome black. Well, I don't. Handsome man, but see. Belief is persuasion. And you'll see the logic behind me stressing this. It doesn't take much to be persuaded that he's Afro-American and I'm Filipino. Correct? Thank you. That's all belief is. We don't have to overcomplicate it. When we say believe in Jesus Christ, what are you trying to do? Sometimes we overcomplicate it. Oh, did you know that he was born of a virgin? He's sinless. He's the second person of the Trinity. There's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is, you're talking to someone who's unregenerate. And sometimes regenerate. By the way, what's regenerate mean? Huh? Believers, okay, just want to make sure we're on the same page since we're on basics. The unregenerate has difficulty understanding these things. So if you say, you know what, the the gospel includes, did you know he died and was buried and rose on the third day and he was also born of a virgin? What? Have you ever had difficulty trying to explain that to someone? You mean to tell me Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? How does that make sense? The truth is, that's hard. Even as a believer, that's very difficult to understand. We do it by faith though, right? But an unregenerate person does not have the capacity to understand that. They are without the Spirit. So when I say belief is persuasion, please understand that our objective is to persuade them about Jesus. Not about what He does or what He has done. Point them to the Simeons, the signs. Take them to the Word of God, which is alive and powerful. Isn't the Word of God alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword? Have them read it. Show them what the Scripture says. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Once you show them what Jesus Christ has done, that is going to hopefully cause an inward response to the information just like when the two of us were standing up in front the information itself should be persuasive not proving the doctrines he rose on the third day he was crucified for your sins he died a horrible death all of those are true and I'm not in any way minimizing that truth but isn't that really a category of discipleship should we not focus that on phase two salvation? Because if you introduce that from the very get-go, which I've attempted in the past, I've noticed that people squirm. And they say, how, do you, how, does, how am I supposed to accept that God the Father, you're telling me that a sovereign supreme being loved the world so much that he, he allowed his own son to die on the cross for me? And he paid a a painful death for me. That's great, but what does that say about God? What kind of father is that? And then you get into a mess. Then you try to explain the virgin birth. Then you try to explain, oh, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. He's also God, God in flesh. It gets very, very complicated. But all we have to do is point them to the person 
What did Jesus say? He who believes in me has everlasting life. So, and I'm sure we're going to discuss this some more and we might have a slightly different take on this, but we'll work on this because I I know we're on the same page, but I just want to make sure that you understand what I'm seeing in Scripture and here, this is, add this to it. So, belief is persuasion and so what I'm saying is Believing in Jesus Christ is the issue for salvation. It's not making a decision to believe. It's not the hour of power. It's not, today is the day to believe in Jesus Christ. Decide now. It's not a time for repentance. It's not a time for surrendering one's life to Jesus. It's not a time to come forward and commit your life or rededicate your life. Or even saying a sinner's prayer, which is not even in the Bible. And I'm confident that you guys know that. And it's not based on walking down an aisle. Did you know that there is not one prayer in the Bible that I'm aware of that requires one to say in order to be saved? Except for that which includes the following. Lord, I'm believing in you today for salvation. I recognize that you've died on the cross for me. And by believing in you, the scripture says I might have everlasting life. Today, I believe that and I'm trusting in you. If you say something along those lines, that's acceptable, I would say. But to include all of these things there, I think would be very complicated to someone who's trying to make sense of a person who died a grueling death, who was virgin born, And he's also God, but he wound up dying. You have the handouts here. You can look if you want. But what's the first, what's the first aspect of salvation? What do we call this one on the left? Very good. What does it mean to be justified? It's not on the notes. (laughs) Anybody know what it means to be justified? It's a declaration of something. You are declared righteous. It's a courtroom term. Justification means to be declared righteous. God declares you righteous at the moment of faith in Christ. So you've got justification in the first, on the left side. What is that called? Phase what? That's phase one. That means it's something that takes place in times past. What about the middle? What is uh, the second phase of salvation? What does sanctification mean? Huh? Christian walk. Very good. What else? Set apart. Excellent. Who sets who apart? Do we set ourselves apart or does God set us apart? So it's a dual, it depends on the context in, uh, in the Bible. God does set us apart for his good work. But we do set ourselves apart as we apply doctrine, as we apply the word in our lives. So we don't mingle with the uh, darkness, we mingle with light, those kind of things. So contextually, it depends. So, salvation is a rich package. What's the last phase of salvation called? And what does that look like? When does that take place? Hmm? When you're dead? That's right. That's a nice way of saying it, when you're dead. Or resurrected. Or raptured. Right? So, I had pointed out before... That the worst thing that can happen to the believer is the best thing that can happen to the believer. And only the believer can understand that fact. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there you have it in its totality. Phase one, phase two, phase three. Phase one is what? I have been saved from what? Penalty of sin. You don't have to worry about sin anymore. So a person, when they go to the lake of fire, it's not because they're a sinner. It's because they have not 
believed in Jesus Christ. Technically, the reason why a person goes to the lake of fire is because their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's because they have never believed in Jesus Christ. So these three phases will we'll develop more in time. Especially phase two, we're going to talk about walking, what it means to walk. We've covered that a little bit earlier today about how it's a mindset. If you set your minds in the things of the Spirit, you will have life and peace. Whereas if you set your things on the things of the world, the cosmos, you'll experience a cessation of things. Things will fall apart. You will lack the peace. You will lack the stability. Phase two is discipleship. This is where you learn the key doctrines. You don't learn it when you're a, a, a unregenerate. You don't learn it when you're an unbeliever. You learn it in phase two. You start in phase one. You become a part of the family of God by believing in Christ. And then you ramp things up and you go into discipleship. This is where you hear verses like, pick up the cross and follow Jesus. So we follow him in phase two. We're not expected to follow him in phase one. So when you tell a person, well, you need to surrender your life to Jesus, that's terminology that belongs in phase two, not phase one. So we don't want to blur the two because remember, a Christian and a disciple are not one and the same. Judas Iscariot is a perfect example. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but he was not clean. In other words, he was not a believer. There were uh, all of them except one was unclean, John chapter 13. It was Judas. And we saw that in the end, when he um, partook of the bread, he, the, Satan entered into him. So he was demon-possessed. So he's definitely not a believer in Christ. He was unclean. Let me just close on, let me just tackle this thing and we're going to close. I want us to look at Ephesians 2 because I gave you the handout. It should be on page 2. I want us to tackle something that keeps surfacing in the Christian circles that uh, people have said faith is a gift. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about faith being a gift. You cannot even believe in Christ until he gives you the faith or the ability to believe. So by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We know in verse 10 it says, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So on the bottom I said, Although you're not saved by good works, you are saved for it. You're not saved by being good. You're saved by believing in Jesus Christ. But you are saved for good works, not by it. That's very important. So if we unpack this verse, and we'll do more of this as we move on. This is color-coded. You'll notice that I like to use colors. Uh, Grace, caris, you have been saved either um, through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And how many times have you heard people say, faith is a gift. God gives you the gift. God gives you grace. So what, which one is the gift? Which does, what does the word that refer to? Very good. I don't even, I'm done. We're done. Bill answered it. The salvation package. You're right. Notice, faith is in the feminine gender. Grace is also in the feminine gender. And the word that cannot refer to faith or grace because it's neuter. And some argue that faith has been given or bestowed upon you. And I think there is that spiritual gift that I don't think is uh, taking place today. We have the, the Word of God now, but there were certain gifts that were phased out during the completion of the canon of Scripture. 
But I just want you to see that faith, I don't believe, is the gift here, but rather it's the entire package that Paul is referring to in the preceding uh, context, the preceding clause. So it's describing the whole salvation package, not faith nor grace. It's all of it. So some you might hear someone say, Rick, have you? Did, were you the one who told me that sometimes uh, people argue that faith is a gift? Or was that Marty? No. So some would say that faith is a gift and it's not a gift. It's the salvation package, all of it. So please notice, grace, you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what does that refer to? Since it's neuter, it can't refer to grace or faith. Both because, as I pointed out, they're in feminine in gender. And as such, it refers to the whole preceding clause that describes the salvation package itself. The corresponding terms must agree in gender. And since they do not correspond, it can't be grace nor faith. So next week we will continue with... um, What did I have here? We'll continue uh, finish moving through... um, our basic study and and uh, hopefully you guys uh, picked up a thing or two and I will see you next week so let's close in a word of prayer and then I'll invite Hal up so that we can close with one with some music Father thank you as always for giving us the opportunity to assemble together as believers in Christ we know Lord that it is imperative that we know what your word says, what it commands, what it instructs, so that we can make application to it. If we don't study your word, there's no way we can apply that which we we have not studied. And so, Father, we are assembling together as saints to honor you through your word and to be in compliance with your mandate that says to not forsake the assembling of saints. Keep us all safe until we meet again. And we are grateful for the privilege that's ours in Christ Jesus in which we pray. Amen.